Support for this podcast and the following message come from Internet Essentials from Comcast. Connecting more than 6 million low-income people to low-cost, high-speed Internet at home. So students are ready for homework, class, graduation, and more. Now they're ready for anything. I'm Bob Boylan with a Plus One podcast from All Songs Considered. If you've never found a way to experience the joys and the tragedies of traditional British folk music, this could be your chance. The Queen of Hearts is the stunning new album by Afa Rex, and it's a project of English singer Olivia Cheney and the American band The Decemberists. It's a record Decemberist songwriter and singer Colin Malloy has always wanted to make. It honors the great British folk tradition, but it also rocks that tradition in the spirit of 60s and 70s bands like Fairport Convention and Steel Eye Span. On this edition of All Songs Considered, a transatlantic conversation with Olivia Cheney and Colin Malloy. It's a pairing that is inspirational and also playfully contentious. It just yeah. seems like you've both found each other's musical mates in some ways. It's, there's there's such a beautiful <laughs> intertwining going on here. And We've actually got nothing in common. But <laughs> <laughs> no, no, wait a minute. After that. <laughs> when you walked in the studio, I think the first words I heard were, uh, what were the original words in the to that song did oh, she we say were, maiden um, did you hear arguing. that he's bitching about me singing the wrong lyrics to his tell, favorite tell, song which the whole project came about over he's uh, still critiquing me <laughs> tell me more what's the song and what are the words calling what's you getting wrong there well, uh, it was the <laughs> discussion it's probably a discussion an age-old discussion <laughs> as old as the hills yeah. you know discussing what is the proper word text. single word text in a in an you know an ancient song <laughs> <laughs> um, but so w- Willia Winsbury, which uh, I know from Anne Briggs, uh, Olivia came with this incredible arrangement. But I kept noticing that she was singing. <laughs> uh, whether you be a maiden or n- none. So so when the story, of course, is when um, the, the king calls his his daughter to him and and wants to check her out to make sure. She's virginal. still virginal and not pregnant, and says, and and I had always heard it as whether you be a maiden, a non, still a maiden. But Olivia saying whether you be a maiden or none, and it was a little point of contention. But in the end, I think <laughs> See, Olivia both... snuck her her, her version <laughs> in. <laughs> but the thing is, with my accent, which has been obviously ridiculed throughout the whole project, working with all these Portlanders. <laughs> Um, you know, I think it's still you could. It's open to interpretation which text I'm actually uh, adhering to. <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, in that sense, I think it speaks to the nature of the collaboration that we both <laughs> tried to bully our way into. <laughs> <laughs> Let me play a little bit of the Anne Briggs for a minute. The king has been a
keep going, keep going. Sorry. Cast off, cast off your very brown gown. Used to make it upon the stone. That I may can ye by your shape, whether you be a maiden or not. <laughs> and she. That's it right there. It's gotta be a non. It's She's gotta be a non. She sings or. Whether you be a maiden or. A maiden anon, huh? I'll let, let the listeners be the judge. Yeah. <laughs> One more time. Hmm. <laughs> I think it's just you guys hearing it. With I, the I'm not. Accent. I'm not hearing what Colin is hearing. Yes. <laughs> Bob's on my side. <laughs> I made a new friend and, and a new enemy. And I'm out of here. This is like I'm three minutes in. Well, Bob, I'm having a really interesting email correspondence with um with the great Andy Irvine, who um I believe oh taught. And actually, did you say you think he's he's is he playing bazooki on? Uh, yeah, uh, yeah. I, I think so. So there's two bazookis on that, and I think one of them is Andy them. from Sweeney's Men. And uh, and I'm. I'm pretty sure he kind of would have taught this song to Anne as well. And um, anyway, I've I, I've met him a little bit, and I'm obviously a huge fan, and sing a few of kind of his other songs and arrangements. And and I've been there's there's this um, I don't know what uh, urban folk myth about the kind of origins of this song. And there was a myth going around that Andy had been in I think in the Vaughan Williams the library Cecil Sharp House in in London, and had been. Um, looking at the you know the child ballad kind of text and then had put the wrong inverted commas tune to the text but I've asked him about this and and actually apparently it's a myth so I should go back to him now and and I and ask him about this this pronunciation <laughs> text <laughs> issue as well and see see whether he can confirm that well I mean the the songs themselves are so fluid I mean yeah. they change. I think Anne may have got it wrong now. Now I'm, I'm going back. <laughs> <laughs> How did you both uh, come to this music? Is uh, our mom and dad's to blame here? Their record collections? Certainly. On my side. On yeah. your side. Not so much on my side. I mean, I, I grew up, you know, a lot of Pete Seeger and John Baez. But I really came to this music, I feel on my own. Did I mean, you, did you by accident or did I just mishear? Did you say John Baez? <laughs> Jo- Joan Baez. Did okay, I say John Baez? Just a pronunciation Baez. issue of the oh, whole interview. Heard <laughs> her brother. Are you a maiden <laughs> or much, not, Colin? <laughs> much better than Joan, John Baez. No, uh, Pete Seeger and Joan Baez yeah. and sort of traditional American folk songs were kind of always swirling around. And then I kind of came to sort of traditional music. I feel like much later, and in, in Bob, you and I have talked about this, but, you know, I think couple of years into my life as a Decemberist began discovering Fairport Convention and this sort of this this side of the folk revival that I had not really been aware of which is the the part that was happening on the other side of the Atlantic mm-hmm. and that allowed and to delve into this mystery that that f- was for the most part I, I think kind of a 
a real fringy genre in America. And so it was as much, it felt like a treasure hunt, <clears throat> digging up Nick Jones records and Ann hmm. Briggs records and things like that. And, and so to me, it was sort of this secret world that existed. But I don't think so much for Olivia. Was that, well, for you, Colin, was that some of the, the attraction? Was on- Yeah, I mean, I mm-hmm. think it was at a time when I felt I had exhausted to to some extent like the, the music that i had loved and it felt the you know the the excitement of discovery going back to my teens you mean the husker doos and stuff of the, the husker doos replacements and jesus yeah. and mary you know camper and beethoven the kind of the 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 subculture movement in the 80s in in america and in, in england and pop but um searching out new branches of the British folk revival tree kind of brought back that feeling that I had when I was first discovering music in my early teens, you know. So that was what was really exciting to me. And where were you, Anne, when you were listening to, uh, you said your parents, uh, mom or dads in particular, but in, where were you living? And He called you Anne. I know, I love, I'm really, I'm honored. I'll, I'll take it. Did I I'll just be do Anne that? Briggs. Oh my gosh. So, <laughs> I was, <laughs> I was staring at this album cover. Of I wish Anne I Briggs looked like I her, Bob. <laughs> I wish I looked and sounded like Anne. <laughs> she was a wild one too. Yeah, yeah, totally. Uh, so where, where were you, Olivia? Uh, in <laughs> John Baez, oh, oh, <laughs> and Anne Cheney, whatever. <laughs> well, probably all over. I mean. I grew up kind of mainly in Oxford, but I delved back to this repertoire after I'd kind of graduated from hothouse conservatoires. and uh, Studying piano, studying voice, both? Uh, both, yeah. yeah, and kind of composition. And and I got a bit, I felt a bit caged in and, and was just kind of experimenting and trying to push boundaries in my own head and music and within those places. And, and actually then weirdly found myself perhaps coming full circle back to kind of childhood listening which was very much like my dad's record collection so I had grown up with this stuff but maybe you know as as one often does with with their parents or other people's elders taste you know you maybe take it for granted and I think uh, in my whatever late teens and early 20s I was like really like listening to kind of crazy variety of stuff but I think I realized that in some sense kind of roots traditional you know whatever word you want to want to call it music the word folk is obviously so potentially contentious but yeah traditional music from all over the world seemed to be kind of at the root of a lot of what I was listening to and so that made me like more deeply go back and and also just all those wonderful songwriters actually and looking at what their inspiration was you know and whether it was Dylan or, or Joni Mitchell and actually ironically in that sense for me it was it's probably I mean it was Fairport and Sonny Danny and, and Bert Yanch and all those people but also you know I had my dad had very kind of transatlantic taste I suppose well, so, and that music was bouncing uh, exactly. so back and forth. And, and that's why this project kind of seemed really lovely because cause it's kind of a transatlantic conversation in a way. And actually, I think I, I felt that Colin sometimes was like, no, we can't do that one because that is actually known as an American trad. And I'm like, yeah, but we brought it over there like a few hundred years <laughs> yeah. ago. We, you know, <laughs> the colonizers or whatever. But anyway. <laughs> I love that. Um, but yeah, my dad definitely, Ann Briggs, was like absolutely one of his favorites. And like all men had a massive crush on her. What was the music that when you first started to get together, is there anything <clears throat> on this record that might have been one of the early songs that you played 
together. Yeah, one that got cut. Ah. <laughs> Dark-eyed sailor. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I think Willie Winsbury was was maybe the instigator. Yeah. Um, still is obviously, and still and still is a point of contention. Hopefully. <laughs> um, uh, so we were touring together. I'd I'd heard Olivia's record and really loved it, and in particular, a, a lot of her arrangements of. Um, Which uh, record for those who don't know her? Uh, it's called the what Swimming it? in the Longest River. Longest River. Oh, yeah, um, the longest river actually. From like it's twenty. Swimming in the river. No, it's actually called the longest river, but the title track is swimming. So I can't okay. even remember what my record's called. Sorry about that. <laughs> the longest <laughs> river. And aside from the fabulous songwriting, there is also some really great arrangements of old of old tunes, and particularly the False Bride, which I thought was beautiful. And um, we invited Olivia to to come on a tour with us. And then I had this sort of secret fantasy that we would play Willia Winsbury with her at some point on the tour. She chickened out. And, <laughs> and we would just recreate the Anne Briggs right. uh, version. And, and in, in that sense, it was, it was sort of the selfish thing, I think, in retrospect, you know, that I would sort of try to live out the experience of having recorded Anne Briggs, you know, the Willia Winsbury. Mm-hmm. And she said no. <laughs> um, <laughs> Or we just never got around to it. I was just a bit, bit scared. I was like, but, really, a jump on stage and do that with you guys after supporting? But, and in the end, I think it led to a really... So So then I had this idea, well, why don't we just make a, a record? Because now I want to see out my other fantasy of being in a 60s you know, psych folk band from England. And I think Olivia was into it, but also... I think helpfully poured a little cold water on some of it. No, I no, I think it's true because, you know, from the outset she was like, I don't want to recreate the Ann Briggs record. Like, what what would we really be doing mm-hmm. if we did Will, Willia Winsbury, you know, slavishly to the Ann Briggs uh, arrangement? Which is true. I mean, it, we wouldn't have made a very interesting record had we just sort of aped the arrangements. And so I, I think between the two of us, me just hell-bent on, on being in a, a legitimate 60s, as if I had a time machine, and Olivia being like, okay, let's cool our heels a little bit and like to try to make it our own a little bit. Well, let me play a little bit of the, because no one's heard this yet. No, let me play a little right. bit of your version of Willie Winsbury, and Do then it. we can come and talk about what it is that you all brought to the table to make this oh. not uh, just Colin's fantasy. <laughs> <laughs> Right, Olivia? <laughs> I'm not sure if I want that role, but <laughs> repressing <we> Colin's <laughs> unconscious. Sickness, or yet been sleeping with a man. 
So how did you approach the song? Um, I I was I mean the whole project for me has been I'm I'm so deeply grateful to Colin for obviously inviting me to come and work with them but but also for being really brilliant at kind of in a sense it's it's a it's the wrong word to use but kind of I feel almost commissioned to do some of these songs also you know to touch a song like the first time ever I saw your face um but this as well I'm a bit I'm a bit weird about you know if I love something enough I feel like it's kind of untouchable and I think I'm I'm still to get over that as a musician you know I need to probably just be a bit uh, dare I say maybe American and bullshit about, <laughs> about things and just like yeah I can yeah. I can do this I and agree. I feel like Colin kind of helped help me with that and because like literally this ballad I know it may seem ridiculous but I'd I'd never really even dared sing Willie Winsbury in shows or anything because it just uh, the Ambrigs version is just so you know was so untouchable to me so yeah. flying over to Portland and knowing I was you know suddenly gonna go into Tucker Martin's lovely studio and I actually, if I'm if I'm really honest, um, I came I came over um, with you know I'd done a lot of work on arrangements, but actually secretly with this one, I kind of came up with this once I'd landed, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and I'd borrowed uh, I can't remember whether it was Colin's guitar or a guitar. I didn't have an acoustic with me, and and I was in um, an eccentric. Uh, Airbnb situation and uh, was struggling with sleep and vocal issues and stuff and yeah I just yeah I don't know it just kind of came out I knew it had to be something delicate there was also obviously you know a whole thing of of coming up with arrangements that would welcome everyone in the band and all all the amazing characters and musicians in the band and that was like really fun at times and also with some songs really challenging and so these guys were really really cool and Tucker also in terms of like allowing the record to have kind of a shape and an arch here and there where sometimes it was more pared down and we captured this really I don't know if you know the whole records to tape which Colin and Tucker um, brilliantly decided which was also a really fun thing for me to do because I'd never done that and always wanted to and this take yeah we just captured it live with with Nate Query playing playing bass and and um, Colin kind of supported me on guitar and yeah it was just quite a magical live take I think in mm-hmm. the end. yeah I mean I, I, I do think that the uh, there there's a lot of instances where the, some of these songs felt untouchable <laughs> to Olivia be, you know because of her connection to the folk scene and to the music itself and in some ways I, I think that we maybe gave her license yeah totally you know because well you're not in a British band you're in an American band now and we can (laughs) do whatever we want and I'm on the other side of the world because also Bob I haven't really like I I know and I know a lot of these guys I mean um I don't know Anne personally. She's she's still alive, yeah. but, but but very elusive. But I don't know her personally. But I know Andy Irvine, who you know taught her this song, and I know all the Carthys and the, the Watersons, and I know Shirley, and 
uh, you know, I've just been playing shows with some of them. I just played a show with Neil McColl, Peggy Seeger and Ewan McColl's son. And so it's like, I, you know, I, there were times with Colin and I where be like, yeah, let's do this or do this arrangement. I was like, no, but I can't because they might not like it. And, you know, I've got to go back home and face them. Or what if they don't like the record? Like literally for me, it was like a reality. And sometimes I felt like it's all right for Colin because he's just like in Portland on the other side of the world. And he's got his. You know. It's funny because growing up around that time mm. uh, and I would buy records and you'd see like the fun of it back then was seeing other people, all these same people you loved doing all these similar songs. And, mm-hmm. and right. that was the playful part of it. And and so I'm glad Colin's taking you out of the <laughs> don't touch, you might break it. Uh, well, but that's because I, I just played a show with, with Martin Carthy and, and his daughter Eliza and Norma Waterson and, and there's other songs on the record which are you know very much inspired from, from them. And I asked him, this is kind of moving on to, to the song, Queen of Hearts and, yeah. and I said Martin I, ho- I hope you don't mind I've kind of done quite a well to me anyway I feel like it's quite a, a radically different arrangement from from perhaps like a trad folk setting and he was like you know very laid back and just like it doesn't belong to anyone it's yours yeah. you know have it but then I said yeah but what about Paul Simon taking your um, Scarborough Fair arrangement and then he just kind of I don't know he, he looked a bit baffled and kind of the conversation didn't <laughs> conclude let's say and and interestingly Andy Irvine like I think he is more not territorial but just like yeah you know I did arrange like I was asking him about another song that I've recorded with Kronos Quartet um, called You Rambling Boys of Pleasure and, and I'm like you know do you feel you kind of wrote some of that song and he's like no I didn't write it I learnt it from these guys and he he names all these old recordings and people mm. he's learnt songs from but but at the same time he does admit that he does feel not ownership but that I mean that's the whole that's the strange thing with, with traditional music there is so much creativity involved actually and so I think it, it kind of yeah I think that's where Colin and I have a really interesting relationship and ongoing conversation about a lot of this repertoire because um, maybe he's just well. I mean, I I, I do think that um, a, a lot of those scenes, whether it be the British folk revival scene to the you know the indie scene in America, I mean, they can become kind of exclusive and a little bit, you know, sort of clickish. Precious. And um, and sometimes I think that, you know there's there's a place for an outsider's uh, mm. perspective mm. and. In, in so many ways, I feel like that was what we were often wrangling with was was trying to get Olivia to be an outsider but with the, us and looking looking in, you know, but that from is the outside an, looking in. Yeah, but that is this is the irony, Bob, is that, of course, <laughs> it's that thing of, you know, you find yourself always playing devil's advocate to things that you even kind of actually secretly agree with. And I think because I was on the other side of, of the ocean, because actually, so then then I would seem like the insider. But of course, actually, when I'm doing shows alongside Shirley or Martin Carthy, I feel like an outsider huh. and I don't feel perhaps fully like they all are really lovely to me and they seem to love my music and what I do. But but of course, in my head, I'm like, yeah, but I'm not trad enough and I write my own <laughs> songs and I do my own things. So it's like, I just feel like a misfit ever, which I suppose is a total <laughs> cliche. But <laughs> I'm going to play a little of Martin Carthy and then a little of your version oh, of, uh, of Queen of Hearts. Give okay. people an idea. Here we go. 
Young men are a plenty, but sweethearts few. If my love leave me, what shall I do? Had I the star in yonder mountain, where a gold and silver is had for counting? And now, uh, let me play a little of yours from the top here. I could listen to that forever. Yeah. I just love it so much. It's so That's iconic. Such, such a pleasure to see him in the early 70s. Oh, wow. With Dave uh, Swarbrick. Oh, amazing, Swarbrick. Amazing. <laughs> uh, here we go. I'm going to play your version. Here. Can you describe the, you say, Olivia, that you had arrangements. Did you hand out paper? Did you, were they, were they actually? <laughs> I think the band would have uh, would have liked it if I had. <laughs> we spent a lot of time, like, Nate having to translate chords because Colin had done some crazy tuning on his 12 string and then me shouting, like, no, A sharp, and then Nate going, no, 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 like, <laughs> yeah, if you'd seen our process. We, we just ended up playing all different chords a few times. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we had quite a quite a unique um, process, I think you would say. But yeah, this this arrangement I had kind of tentatively. I feel like I'd brought this one over with me on the plane, but I felt shy of it, of course, being me. And John, the drummer, who's also kind of really deeply passionate about the repertoire, which kind of inspired this project, you could say. He has a, an amazing collection of instruments and had this um, this electric harpsichord this beautiful thing which he brought to to Collins where we were rehearsing at first and I you know that was just right up my street I'd just done a huge um kind of quite creative commissioned project about Purcell who's one of my favorite composers and I grew up singing his music and yeah so and and I'm you know friends with Trevor Pinnock and like so yeah to have like a kind of 60s rocky electric take on on baroque harpsichord was just absolutely perfect and and also really perfect for this song which was more serendipitous in a way because I hadn't planned all of that but but thinking about this song and um, reminding myself of the origins of it not you know pre Martin Carthy it is it's very much from that era it's from Purcell's era restoration England you can kind of hear that in the melody so so I think I hope it's kind of quite quite fitting in and a way. I, I think the arrangement and the and the production in particular like yanks it 
from Martin Carthy and kind of establishes yeah. it directly into the kind of 60s psych pop yeah. folk, yeah. which is was really what, you know, the target we were going for. I mean, all along, I was maintaining that we were kind of putting a bullseye on on the wall that was made, made like a stack of steel eye span and Fairport Conventions <laughs> records, and we were going to shoot for it, but inevitably we were going to miss. But the arrow mm. would land somewhere mm. interesting, <laughs> at well, least. As someone who fell in love with that music and listened to that so much and was so part of my life, when I when I heard this, I wouldn't use the word miss, but uh, it, it's different. <laughs> but uh, it feels so good. It feels so comfortable Aww. like those records did. Well, we really wanted to make it our own. That's what I say when I say miss. It's sort of an, an intentional yeah, missing. Okay. Like yeah. we don't want to recreate or, or mimic overly. You know, we want to make it our own. And yet have it be kind of a pan to, to that era of music making. I knew a little of Fairport in the in the late 60s, but I, I went to a, a Jethro Tull concert in the very mm. early 70s. It might have been their first tour. It might have been the second. I don't know. But there was a group that came on stage, and, you know, back then it was just hard to find stuff. And I someone said, oh, yeah, that Steel Ice Band, they're really mm. good. Mm-hmm. And I worked in a record store back then, and I had, you know, access to this monster, you know, <clears throat> thousand-page catalog of, like, everything ever made. Right. Uh, and there was no group called Steel Ice Band. <laughs> and, and I spent uh, a good good chunk of, like, ten months trying to find out what this was. Steel <laughs> Ice Band. Right. Before the age of Google. <laughs> Before, yeah. And then one day, uh, I'm in the back room, an order came in, and one copy of, uh, of their first album on Chrysalis Records made it, in, and it wow. said Steel Ice Band. I said... Because it was like a banquet table or something, and it looked yeah. like old England, and it, I went, "Oh my God, there it is!" And I was forever hooked on on that music. Except below the salt, yeah, yeah. sure was. <laughs> you got it from my terrible description of the album cover. Yeah. We made reference earlier to uh, a song that people know, and I'm going to play a little of it. It's a song performed by Roberta Flack called "The First Time Ever I Saw Your Face." It's, uh, I'm going to interrupt Roberta so that we can talk a little about the history of the song because I think most people thought it was a beautiful, soulful ballad written, you know, maybe yeah. in D.C. or in Chicago or <laughs> something. But That's what I had thought always, too, knowing it from, you know, it's an Atlantic rhythm and blues record. Mm-hmm. Um and having you know it been in you know on radio and you know parents records collection i think at some point i discovered that it had, the song had been written by ewan mccall mm-hmm. and i made a correlation between 
wait, the guy who wrote First Time Ever I Saw Your Face also wrote Dirty Old Town. <laughs> and there was this really strange, I mean, it, it, occasionally in this sort of wild, wide world of modern music, there's there are these really strange lines drawn in from very disparate parts of the universe. And that happened to be one of them. So that led me to dig into so where did that song come from? It was written for his then wife, Peggy Seeger, to sing. And I don't think she was actually yet his wife when he wrote it, oh, I think. It was, <laughs> but yeah. it obviously About to be third wife, I think. I mean, yeah. if you write a song like that. Yeah. Yeah. And so then discovering the Peggy Seeger tune version of it was so... I mean, the the Roberta Flack one is unimpeachable. is mm. is gorgeous. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's, I uh, just listening to it right now in headphones, mm. you just lose yourself to it. But then going back to kind of the source material, the Peggy Seeger version is equally unearthly. Um, yeah, I can hear it coming in. <laughs> and the moon and stars were the gift you gave. To the dark and empty skies, my love. To the dark and empty skies. The first time ever I kissed your mouth. I felt the earth move in my hand Like the trembling heart of a captive bird That was there at my command Yeah, that could seal a marriage or... Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Apparently, I'm not sure. I need to check this yeah. with with her son Neil. But um, and actually, her, she's still totally going strong. Um, but apparently, it she needed um, a song for a theatre project, and he kind of wrote it for that. But then you just yeah, mm, the romantic implications. Then they become you know husband <laughs> and wife. So. And you listen to that, and there there's a there's almost there's almost sort of a naive art. Um, approach to it or, or sound you know it, it sounds almost like a field recording like an old which I, you know is more in keeping with what you and McCall the sort of world he was working in and certainly all that stuff live to tape like what you do, do yeah. with your record that's so my pitch to Olivia was <laughs> um, was you know uh, particularly on on, on <laughs> this <Fun> side <laughs> keep going this side of the Atlantic, I mean, that song, of course, is is owned by Roberta Flack, and I thought it would be interesting to go back to the Peggy Seeger version, and and try to to sort of update. But for me, again, um, although Colin maybe can't shake in perceiving me as like the kind of English folk girl, of course, for me, I'm like supposedly within the English folk scene, but but um totally grew up with the Roberta Flack version as well and there goes the like cyclical transatlantic musical conversation you know and other culturally so so for me I I really I almost had to decide conceptually one cannot 
shake off the Roberta Flack version. Right. It's And I think that's a really interesting kind of conversation in terms of what we've been talking about of me being daunted to, to say, touch a Martin Carthy arrangement or an Anne Briggs, you know, the Queen of Hearts or Willie Winsbury. And this is like almost going backwards because it's like everyone knows the version, which is actually, in a sense, a cover of the original, if you see what I mean. And so I felt like my interpretation almost, it couldn't help, even if I tried to just be true to Peggy's eager, I, I couldn't help but maybe have something of what I also grew up with, which was the Roberta Flack. And and also it makes me think of, in this whole project and, and my approach to, to singing traditional songs, or, or actually singing covers of anything in a way, is is what you do with melody. And and I, even with the Queen of Hearts, just when you played them back now, I realised that I pull melody around a lot, maybe too much sometimes. But I think with this song, I really kind of tried to sit somewhere between them all and, and then say something with my own voice. So I hope I managed that, but I'm definitely but- indebted to Colin to <laughs> pitching the idea to me. <laughs> I'm going to play this. I can't wait for folks to hear it. The first time ever I saw your face I thought the sun rose in your eyes And the moon and stars were the gift you gave to the dark and empty skies, my love. To the dark and empty skies. The first time ever I kissed your mouth. I felt the earth move in my hand Like the trembling heart of the captive bird That was there at my command That was there at my command. Who's playing the harmonium on that? Oh, that's me. That's just Olivia, and I'm still kind of, I just love listening to that. Um, God, I feel daunted hearing that back. <laughs> yeah, totally. That was just Olivia in the room with her harmonium, and I swear that was maybe the third take. Yeah. I think it, we, we caught something early on. I think Tucker and I were both in the control room and listening, and it was the sort of thing that you needed. So she was just doing it all live, harmonium and voice in a room by herself. And the sort it's it's like you only have a, a. I feel like when you're doing that kind of thing, you have a brief window. The window is just opening, and you're just learning and getting comfortable with it. And you know, you can correct me if I'm wrong, Olivia, because I just know this from experience doing this sort of thing but then the window is open and then the window so slowly starts closing again as you get farther along so you really need to find that that moment when it's really open and even though you feel like you could do it better you know sometimes 
you, you find the one where it's right in the middle and there's some imperfections, but the sort of soul of it was there. I remember lying in the control room and just like, I think I even maybe cried a little bit. No. I think I wept. But this is, <laughs> I, I wept, wept when, I, when I wept after the Willie Winsbury take, so there you go. But, um, it's a lot of weeping. Yeah, yeah. a lot of weeping. <laughs> Intense project and academic arguing too. Sounds like a next album um, title, frankly. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, but I, I, yeah, I would like to say actually in that sense, um, there's, there's several takes on this record, Flash Company as well, where... Flash Company, I came up with the arrangement in about kind of five minutes and that basically we got to the end of the record and the time we had in the studio and we realized that we didn't kind of quite have the shape we wanted and it was like, we need, we need another song. And I, I wanted to do something that was like really going back to a kind of field recording, but albeit field recording, a kind of iconic one by the, the gypsy singer Phoebe Smith. So I came up with that very quickly and then we were kind of just jamming it. I tried to write something that everyone could join in on. I changed the time signature from what the field recording is, is very much like a waltzy thing in three and I put it in four and it kind of ended up like a country song unintentionally. <laughs> but the point is, is, is that the whole band, but very much Tucker and Colin, were like, we've got it. That's that's the take. I mean, I seriously looked at everyone incredulously and was just like, you've got to be kidding. <laughs> that, and that kind of summarizes like my, you know, me in the studio and them in the studio. And I, I'm really grateful. I learned so much. And I hope when I come to make like my next record, I will really, you know, deeply remember what, what Colin just talked about because it's so true. And I, I really learned a lot from working with them all in that sense of about my own musicianship and about just being a human and a musician of like you can't you know that that unattainable thing and I think I'm always trying to get that and I think these guys really taught me that sometimes the magic is is there before you think it is we have like four minutes so I want to do two things one is there were three dates in New York in uh in April how is this stuff going to be presented to the public besides this album are you all going to go out on tour and how is it how are you going to share this music live I mean, from the outset, this was a, a, a really a, a project that was centered around the arranging and recording. To my mind, it wasn't so much the live presentation of it, but we do want to do our due diligence and, and get it out there. And, and I think performing the songs live is exciting, too. So we are going to be doing a, a very few amount of dates, uh, mostly on, on the East Coast. We're doing Newport Folk Festival. Oh, and we're doing. I will see you there a show at Town Hall in, in New York and a show at a festival in Philadelphia. And then uh, Offer X will also be um, playing one of the nights at our uh, festival in Montana, Traveler's Rest, in hmm. August. Oh, that's exciting. Let's get to the last tune. I hope we don't get cut off. Last song on the album is To Make You Stay. Tell me about mm-hmm. this song. I don't know this song. So this is a song, actually, one of the few original songs uh really i mean other than bonnie well, first time ever I see you first time i ever mm. yeah one of the few so um it's written by lyle watterson who was part of the the watersons um you know that's a, a seminal part of the the british folk revival in the 50s even i think it started in the 50s yeah late 50s normal late 50s, what's normal watterson's sister and brothers and yeah from yeah. hull yeah and uh, when I think Norma was in Jamaica or somewhere in the Caribbean on a ra- it being a radio DJ, DJ yeah, as you do as an English folk singer, um, <laughs> Mike and Lal Watterson made a record called Bright Phoebus, which while I think 
maybe out of print or really hard to find. Certainly digitally, it's not available. Um, it's it's a, a beautiful and incredible and experimental record. And it was them kind of breaking away from this wholesale, you know, d- doing only trad music, but mm-hmm. actually working on their own material. And uh, it, it's sort of the British Folk Revival's version of Sgt. Pepper's, <laughs> I think, was how they were envisioning it. But like, To Make You Stay was a song on there. I, and then I actually learned our version from some demos that were actually released, some Lyle Watterson demos, I think by either Fledgling or Topic. These are labels for those who don't year. know what you're talking Yeah, la- mm-hmm. record labels. The lyrics are I- I- incredible. And um, I felt like it was it was a fitting. I don't think you can do a... a British folk revival homage without oh, a nod to, to Lyle Watterson. Well, I'll go out on that song. Who's Tell me who's playing what instruments here, uh, do you recall? So I think it's pretty much the full band, except for maybe Chris Funk is not on it. Um, it's me playing acoustic guitar and singing John Moen on drums, Nate Query on bass, and Olivia playing harmonium with the live track and then and she then did Iva some Dubson. some kind of piano psychedelic piano tickles that's <laughs> <laughs> amazing piano well i thank you for all, all this and uh i'll see you in newport this is a beautiful beautiful record so yeah thank you it. so thank much you bob i really much. appreciate it yeah. i hope people find their way to this who may not have ever you know that's how it all happens and someone's gonna own this record and they're gonna grow old and they're gonna pass it down to their we can Next only generation. hope. We can I only hope. I do hope. See you in Newport. Yeah, see, see you then, Bob. Thanks. Thanks. Be well. Olivia Cheney and Colin Malloy, the project with the Decemberists is called Afa Rex, named after an 8th century British king. The album, The Queen of Hearts, is out on Nonsuch on July 7th. Ten or so tour dates have been announced, including the Newport Folk Festival and the WXPN Exponential Festival in Philly. I'm Bob Boylan for NPR Music. It's all songs considered.
NPR podcasts are now available on every major platform. Check out all our shows at npr.org slash podcasts. That's npr.org slash podcasts.